Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Well, grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Philippians chapter 3. You know what? We've all been there before when it felt like it was hopeless. I've stood by many graves when I saw family members feel the absolute crush of defeat as they placed their loved one into the tomb. So you can imagine the weight that was crushing the disciples and all the followers of Jesus on that, what we call Good Friday. When they saw Jesus, the one who their hope was in, whom they had walked with for three years, the one who had fulfilled so many prophecies and done so many miracles, and they just knew that he was indeed the one, but here he is nevertheless, dead on a cross, absolutely defeated, it looked like, absolutely defeated. And as they peered at that, and then they put him in that grave, I love that line from that text where it said, he only borrowed it for three days because he wasn't going to be there long. It wasn't even his grave. It was a borrowed tomb because he just needed it for a moment because victory was about to be snatched from the clutches of defeat. Man, one of the greatest feelings in the world is winning, isn't it? Don't you love to win? Winning some sort of, I mean, I don't care what it is. Basketball, football, baseball, Monopoly. I've done victory dances on Monopoly. Tiddlywinks. Did y'all know that's an actual world-class sport? They actually have world championships for tiddlywinks. They do, man. It doesn't matter what it is. If I'm playing, I want to win because when you win, there's a celebration and you can't help but celebrate. It just comes naturally like this picture all the way back from 1997 here. I don't know if you can tell who that is on the far right there. That might be my armpit right there. <laughs> Nevertheless, that is me, man. This picture, believe it or not, I found this online. Uh, that's me and my Warren East Raider teammate celebrating after beating Logan County in the 1997 Fourth Region Championship that sent us to Rupp Arena after that. Man, it was an amazing feeling. I, I, I still have my piece of the basketball net that we cut down there, unless my kids have lost it because they keep trying to get it and lose it, right? From Barron County High School. That's who hosted the tournament that night. We were at Barron County High School. You see, that's what basketball champions do when they win a championship to sort of symbolize that they have defeated everybody. They go and they cut down the nets. We went on that year to get third place in the state tournament, man. It was just an amazing run. That's just an unforgettable experience. But imagine for a moment how strange it would have been if we had come out that night, that Thursday night, at Barron County High School at warm-ups. I went and just ran out to the center court and started saying, we won, we won, we are the champions. And then grabbed a ladder and cut down the nets before the game ever began. What would you think of a team that did that? You would think... They have lost their minds. They are crazy. You see, you don't celebrate a victory before it happens. You might guarantee a victory. You might hope for a victory, but you don't celebrate the victory 
before it happens, but today in the Christian calendar is the day that Jesus did just that. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. The week where we celebrate the victory of Jesus through the crucifixion and through the resurrection. Today is Palm Sunday, which is an entire week before Resurrection Sunday, before Easter, all right? When Jesus victoriously, triumphantly entered Jerusalem on this day. So what makes you say that it was a triumphant entry, a victorious entry? And the answer is because he rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey colt. And people cheered and they waved palm branches and they laid them in his path to ride over along with their coats as well. It was just really a symbolic moment. We see this symbolism, this story here from Jesus' life in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Listen to what it says. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage... To the Mount of Olives, when Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send you them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king's coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now that's the account from from Matthew. The Gospel of John says it this way. It's much shorter, but I want you to hear it. John 12, 12 through 15 says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, Palm Sunday, and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, the imagery right here is an image of victory, of triumph. Jesus is riding into the city on a donkey colt and people are waving palm branches. That's very important. All of that imagery there. Because in the ancient Near Eastern cultures that Jesus lived in, after kings conquered a city, they would then often ride a donkey colt through that city as a symbol of victory. It basically, they're basically saying, I'm such a conquering king that I don't even need a war horse anymore. I'm going to ride a donkey colt. I am totally in triumph. And people would wave palm branches, which were symbols of peace. The battle was over. Peace was now in the city. This is how kings essentially cut down the nets, if you will, in those days. 
And here is Jesus with all that symbolism of triumph riding into Jerusalem. But it was on this Sunday, before the Sunday, that he rose from the dead. You don't cut down the nets before the game. Yet, that's how sure Jesus was in his victory. You see, beloved, I want to say to you this morning, and this is the title of this message, Jesus is forever triumphant. And here's the cool thing, is that he's inviting you to be a part of that victory. Right? He's inviting you and he's inviting me to be forever triumphant with him. Victory in Jesus. But it's not just a one and done victory. It's an everyday victory. But what does that look like? Well, that's our task today. We're going to answer that question. Here it is. The question we're going to ask, answer today and ask is how do I live every day in the triumph of Jesus? It's Palm Sunday, triumphant Sunday. How do we live every day in the triumph of Jesus? Our text today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It tells us exactly how to do that. As we continue in our series called The Journey with Joy, where we're walking through the book of Philippians, I want to invite you to stand today to honor the reading of the Word of God. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 God's word, every bit of it's true, y'all. So let's hear what it has to say. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a passage of scripture. Let's pray. Father, we come and ask that you help us this morning. Father, there is so much in this text that we could grasp onto this morning, God. But help us today to think about through the eyes of victory. God, that's what we want. We don't want to be losers. We want to be winners. And you show us here in the text that connection to Jesus is how we become winners forever. Father, I pray for the one, maybe the two, maybe the ten, or ever how many this morning, God, who have yet to repent and trust in Christ. May today they see their sin, 
they hear the Holy Spirit call. And today would be the day they would turn from Christ, or turn from, from sin and trust Christ as their Savior and Lord. Father, we thank you for all you're going to do in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we give you thanks. And all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and grab your seat there. So how do I live? Today's Palm Sunday, Triumphant Sunday. How do I live every day in the triumph of Jesus? Our text here points us to three actions. And I want to commend them to you this morning. The first one is this, and this is really important. If you're going to live in the victory of Jesus, first you must refuse to be pulled into the false hope of works righteousness. Refuse to be pulled into the false hope of works righteousness. This is a real temptation. Every one of us, man, because this is natural religion. You're born wanting to earn your way to heaven. We naturally want to put confidence in what we can do. And Paul makes it very clear here, just to put it in the simplest of terms, don't! <laughs> I mean, he says it in a much more um, a flowery way, you know, a, a greater way, more explicit way. But straightforward, he says, don't do that. Don't put your confidence in works righteousness. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. First, I want you to notice who are we supposed to rejoice in? Who? Brothers, let me, say, let, me, let me read it, and you guys fill in the blank here. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say yourself. It says the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians, for instance, chapter 4, verse 7. He asks some very important questions that you and I need to consider this morning. For those of us who struggle with self-righteousness, for those that struggle with arrogance, those that struggle with wanting to earn our way to heaven. He asks this, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So beloved, I ask you this morning, when you think about your life in Christ, the hope that you have in Jesus what do you have spiritually that you did not receive from God? And the answer is nothing. Everything you have in Christ, you received through Christ and from God. That's why we don't rejoice in ourselves. There's nothing to rejoice in. Every single boast that we have is in Jesus that's why Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 30 and 31, he says, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you and I, we have to refuse to boast in ourselves, in our own self-righteousness, in our own works righteousness because the truth of the matter is 
we added nothing to our salvation. But for Jesus and his works, we would be utterly lost. Amen? Utterly lost. So refuse to pull and to put your, your, your false hope in works righteousness. That's a false hope. Hope in Jesus' victory. Live in Jesus' triumph. But know there are going to be those that are going to try to pull you away from that hope. Who are going to try to get you to, to remove and, and to, to transfer the, the, the locus of your hope to a different thing. To something outside of Jesus. That's why Paul says we need to look out for the dogs and the evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh. Now, when Paul says look out for the dogs, he ain't using it like we use it today, like where my dogs at? <laughs> he ain't using it that way. And it's not like today, man. I mean, today people are crazy about dogs. I mean, we as a society, I mean, stores dedicated to dogs. It's just amazing how much we love our dogs today, okay? But that's not how people saw dogs in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. Dogs in Paul's day were primarily wild scavengers that plagued cities. They, they roamed about in packs. They fed off of garbage. They would attack humans, and they were despised. They were unclean. They were filthy. They were dangerous animals. And so dog was frequently used as a slur, as a, as a derogatory term. In fact, in, 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 in biblical times, Jews would commonly call Gentiles dogs. But Paul wants to be clear here. They, the, these dogs are those who try to pull you into the false hope of works righteousness. They are evil doers in that regard, Paul says, particularly in Paul's day, these dogs were the Judaizers. Those that, that, that tried to make Christians keep the Old Testament law. They said, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to keep all of the Jewish law. That typically meant being circumcised. That, that, that's, why, that, that's why he calls them mutilators of the flesh. They were calling people to put confidence in their flesh, but they were actually just mutilating their flesh. And so he says we should avoid people like this at all costs. Put no confidence in the flesh. And then he turns and he uses himself. You need an example here? You need an illustration? Paul says, look at Paul. Look at himself, he says. If anybody could have confidence in the flesh, it would be him. Look at what he says here, verses 5 and 6. Philippians 3, verse 5 and 6. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If you were looking for a religious person and they were putting in resumes, Paul's resume would be on top right? He was, the, he was the Hebrew of Hebrew. He was the religious person of the religious people. He, he basically says, I out-religioned all of you. Surely there's reason to boast, right? But Paul says, not even I, not even he can put confidence in the flesh. And if he can't, Ben Simpson can't, and you can't, right? We can't put confidence in our flesh. If Paul couldn't, we can't. So I wonder this morning, 
Are you? Are you putting confidence in your flesh? L- let me ask it this way, because maybe that, that's not going to connect with you. Here, let me ask it a different way. Why should God let you into heaven? Let's ask it that way. That's where the rubber meets the road here. Why should God let you into heaven? And if your answer this morning when I ask you that question is, because preacher, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. If that's your answer, let me lovingly tell you this morning that you are lost as a goose, if that's your answer this morning. In the name of Jesus, I love you. And I'm not trying to put you down, but you need to understand if your hope is in yourself, in your own righteousness here, you are hopeless. You are hopeless. You're putting your confidence in your flesh, and the Bible says you will not see heaven. If your answer is this, why should God let me into heaven? Well, because Jesus did some stuff, and then I did some stuff. I did the rest. Jesus started the race. I finished it. No, 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 beloved. Jesus' works plus your works will get you nowhere but hell. That's what the Bible says. Jesus' works plus your works will get you nowhere but hell. Hell, even if you say, well, listen, hold on. I mean, Jesus did 99% of it. I just did 1%. But is that not putting confidence in the flesh? And the answer, of course it is. God teaches us in scripture that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That means that the only right answer when you're asked, why should God let you into heaven? The only right answer is because I'm trusting in the work of Jesus. I'm trusting in his righteousness, the life that he lived that was perfectly righteous. And the death that he died paying for our sins and his resurrection proving that he paid it all. And to all, to him, we owe, guys. Refuse to be pulled into the false hope of works righteousness. But secondly, as we live every day in the triumph of Jesus, secondly, is to consider Christ as more valuable than anything else on earth. That's what he says here. Consider Christ as more valuable than anything else on earth. Look at Paul's example here, verse 7 and 8. Philippians 3, 7 and 8, but whatever gain I had, he says, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Man, Paul had gained a lot in his life at this point. He had all the degrees on his wall. He had all the accolades of his friends and of his community. It had taken great effort, study, networking, discipline, all the things that it took to get all that stuff. And he he achieved it. In his zeal for religion, he hated Jesus. He arrested Christians. He even 
encourage their death. But all that changed on the Damascus Rose. The Damascus Damascus Road, when when he came face to face with that resurrected Jesus, suddenly what he was pursuing, which looked so grand moments before, suddenly looked trivial, looked measly compared to Jesus. Suddenly all that he had gained, he was willing to let go of and walk away from so that he might gain Jesus. He had outsmarted, by the grace of God, one of the devil's favorite traps. You see, one of the devil's favorite traps is sort of what you would call a monkey trap. You guys know what a monkey trap is? A monkey trap is this contraption or a box that contains some sort of bait that a monkey wants. Maybe it's a banana, maybe it's an apple, whatever it is, it's something the monkey wants. But to get the bait, the monkey has to stick his hand in there in a hole that is just big enough for his hand to get through. And when he grabs onto that thing inside, that banana or that apple, all of a sudden, his hand becomes too big while he's holding onto that thing to get it back out. And so he's trapped. And he won't let go until... Somebody comes, I guess, knocks him in the head. Boom. He's just, uh, his, his nature is to grasp onto that thing and not let go. But let's be honest. He's not really trapped, is he? There is nothing holding on to him. There is nothing. It's not like the steel jaws of a bear trap that goes whoosh and grabs hold. Nothing is holding on to him. He is trapped because he is holding on to something and will not let it go. All he has to do is let it go. The devil uses a very similar trap for us. You reach into life, you grab a hold of that thing that you want more than anything else in the world. And when Jesus calls you, you might kind of want to let go, you, you, you kind of want to come, but you're holding on to that thing and you're stuck. Maybe that thing this morning for some of you who have not yet trusted Christ, maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe your thing is money that you're holding on to and it's keeping you trapped from coming to Jesus Christ. Maybe it's prestige or wanting to be cool in front of your friends. Maybe it's alcohol or, or drugs or some, some other vice. Maybe that thing is, is family. Sometimes family can keep you from Christ. But whatever it is, and for those of you that are already in Christ, think back to what it was that you were holding on to that was keeping you from letting go so that you could go to Jesus. Whatever that thing is, listen to me this morning, this is so important. That thing doesn't actually have a grip on you. You have a grip on it and you're trapped and you will be trapped until you realize and you decide to let it go. And when you let it go, you will come to Christ and you will be saved and you'll have all that. Guys, listen to me. Consider for just a moment. Jesus is more valuable than that thing that you're holding on to. 
Let it go. Man, you'll be free from the trap like Paul was free from that trap. But we get it. It's not easy. Because you really love that thing that you're holding on to. There once was a young man who came to Jesus. This man was very wealthy. He was a ruler of some sort. He came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And and Jesus said back to him, what are you talking good? (laughs) Nobody is good but God. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, knowing that there were well over 600 commandments, this, this, this young ruler, this rich young ruler says, well, which ones? Tell me which ones and I will do them. And so Jesus named off some. Don't murder. Don't ad- commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your mom and dad. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to Jesus, I've done those. I've kept them all. What else do I lack? And picking up in the scripture here, Matthew 19, 21 and 22, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And it says this in verse 22, so sad. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Basically, Jesus says to this young man, if you would be saved, let go of your possessions. His possessions didn't have a grip on him. He had a grip on his possessions and all he had to do to gain Jesus was to let go. I know without a doubt there are men, women, boys and girls here this morning who have not yet trusted Christ. What are you holding on to that's keeping you from Jesus? Whatever it is, it does not compare. In fact, Jesus surpasses. He is greater. No matter how valuable that thing is, how good it looks, when you compare it to Jesus, that thing looks like, as Paul says here, rubbish, trash. The word here in the Greek is the Greek word skubala, which some translate as dung. Now listen, I'm not trying to be crass. This morning. I mean, literally he says, those things compared to Jesus are doo-doo. <laughs> I'm a dad with five kids. We say doo-doo around the house, right? I mean, that's what he's saying here though. Paul says that's how much better Jesus is So I say to you, whatever it is, man, let it go. Let go of it that you may grab a hold of Jesus who is much greater, much greater. Now listen, that's not just something that happens at conversion. Every day, every day there is a monkey trap out there waiting for you as a Christian. And every day you have to determine that you're going to want something more than Jesus or actually that you're going to want Jesus more than something else. Every day you have to set your mind on Jesus who's above and not on things below. Every day you have to devote your heart to Jesus above all else. And then, as you consider Jesus as more valuable than anything else on earth, then you will live every day in the triumph of Jesus. 
finally, on this Palm Sunday, on this triumphant Sunday, how do you live every day in that triumph? Well, third is to focus on what you gain through your relationship with Christ. Focus on what you gain through your relationship with Christ. Paul said that he was willing to let everything go. But you know what? That would have been a lot harder if he had walked backwards. You guys ever try to run a race backwards? Didn't, didn't uh, Center for Courageous Kids just do a backwards run yesterday? How hard was that? <laughs> I mean, Tony and the Center for Courageous Kids, I mean, I don't know what they're, they're messing with. Not only is it hard to run a 5K or ever how long it was, but you did it backwards? I can't imagine how hard that was. But listen, this, has got, this is a perfect spiritual illustration. If you walk backwards to Jesus, you will keep your eyes focused on what you left behind. You're saying, Jesus, I'm coming. Jesus. And you're walking backwards the whole time, but what are your eyes fixed on? That thing which you left behind. And guess what? When you fix your eyes on those things, those things will still look tempting to you. It'll be a loss. You're getting further and further from the things that you left behind. You're saying, oh, man. I used to be able to do that. I used to go here. I I used to think that. I, I used to have this. But God wants you to turn around. (laughs) He wants you to fix your eyes forward. He wants you to fix your eyes, not on what you left behind, but on what you're gaining. And what are you gaining? What you gain is staggering, according to this text. What you gain, look at verse 8 through 11. He said, indeed, I I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Our text here says that you gain five things when you come to Christ. First, you gain Jesus. You gain Jesus, your creator, your sustainer, your savior, your Lord, your brother, your co-heir, your bridegroom. You get Jesus. But not only do you get Jesus, second, you get his righteousness. You get his righteousness. Perfect, 100% holiness. Not this filthy rags junk that you and I have. But with Jesus, it's 100% pure, white as snow, righteousness. Third, you get his power. Man, when you come to Christ... When you gain Jesus, you get power from heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, and he intercedes for us. We know from Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through whom? Christ, who strengthens me. 
forth, not only you get his power, but you get his sufferings. And you say, whoa, whoa. Now, hold on, preacher. I like the power and the, and the righteousness and all that stuff, but I don't know about the suffering stuff. God says in Romans 8, 28, that he works all things to the counsel, or uh, he works all things to the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, he does that. He does that conforming oftentimes through sufferings. Notice Paul says here that I might be like him. If you want to be like Jesus, you got to have his sufferings. And that's what you gain. You gain his sufferings. And then finally, number five, you gain a resurrection from the dead. One day, you, because of the power of Jesus, though you die physically, will one day physically rise from the dead. Just like Jesus walked out of that tomb, one day you and I will indeed walk out of our grave. Amen? Guys, I'm telling you, amen. That's good news. That's good news. That is what we are fixing our eyes on. Yeah, we left some stuff behind. But compared to what we're gaining, they're rubbish, they're trash. God has heaped blessing upon blessing on us. I have to believe, man, somebody today is going to get saved. I've prayed for it, man. I've prayed for it. I've tried to preach the goodness of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel today. And I am just praying that somebody today is going to get saved. As Jesus rode in on that donkey, I'm wondering who's riding with him. Who is riding with him to victory? Here's my final prayer. May every day be a day of triumph as you ride with Jesus. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. 
Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us. And I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.